You'll need your copy of Joshua 10 open so that you might follow very carefully as you watch the progress of the triumph of the kingdom of God. As I said, you are in for a a bit of a surprise over our next couple of sermons that will happen in a few weeks because we've taken 38 weeks to come this far in the book of Joshua. But God willing and God helping us, we will try to cover nine chapters in the next two sermons. Most of you are betting against that. It may yet be that that's more than we can handle, but that's going to be our strategy. It depends on how well J. Paul holds up. So as you come to this place tonight, many of you come burdened down. You come feeling defeated as you battle with your three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Some of you come hopelessly saying, I will never conquer these enemies. My sin presses in so hard on me from the flesh. The world is so seductive to me. The devil whispers in my ear, the, these enemies are unconquerable. <clears throat> Tonight I bring you a word of hope and of encouragement. Because the picture that you're going to see in God's word is one of triumph. Of the believer's victory over all his enemies foreshadowed for us in this text. Let's seek the help of the Lord now. O sovereign Lord, help us tonight to say, just as Samuel of old said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. How we desperately need a powerful word from you tonight. As we hear, keep us from arrogance, which refuses to see our need of learning. Keep us from independence and resenting your perfect wisdom. And right now, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, give us concentration, discernment, and remembrance. And through our hearing, may your holy church be strengthened and preserved. We pray in the name of the great mediator of the covenant, Jesus our Lord. Amen. Some context is necessary. If you've never been with us before, or if it's been a couple of weeks since you tapped in on where we are in the book of Joshua, a bit of context. We would go all the way back to Genesis where God made a covenant with Abraham. Genesis 15 and then repeated it in Genesis 17. And he promised to make of Abraham this old man. He promised to make of him a great nation and give him a mighty posterity. He promised to to place that posterity in the land of Canaan. After delivering Abraham's descendants from Egyptian bondage and renewing that Abrahamic covenant with them at Mount Sinai, God miraculously preserved them through wilderness wanderings for 40 years. And finally, faithfully, brings them to Canaan, the promised land. The second they enter the land, they have battles on their hands. This teaches you something about the nature of the Christian life. It's pictured for us there. The second Israel enters the promised land, they have battles on their hands. And by the time we get to our text today in Joshua 10, they are fighting multiple tribal groups and city-states at once. They are fighting wars on every front. In the first half of Joshua 10, which we expounded two weeks ago, we saw God supernaturally intervene to rain down hailstones on the Canaanites. He caused the sun to stand still so the Israelites could pursue their enemies. I want you to pick up the narrative with me now in Joshua 10, 15. And I want to remind you of some basic things as we look at this chapter. It's imperative that we as believers be skilled interpreters. There are A lot of skills you can go from the cradle to the grave and never pick up and it will do you no harm. But if you're a bad interpreter of scripture, 
It will dog every step. You'll remain in weakness and immaturity. And every believer is called to be a workman who needs not be ashamed. And so whenever we open any text, especially an Old Testament text, we need to remember the principles which safeguard our interpretation. Let me remind you of just four of those, four basic hermeneutical or interpretive principles. And if you don't understand, especially about military passages like this, you'll draw the wrong conclusion and it will be a dangerous conclusion. And people are drawing those conclusions even now today, and I'll point them out to you. What I want to help you to is to interpret the text rightly and then get to the right conclusion. Four principles you'll need tonight. The first is, no matter what the Old Testament text is, we should always look to find Christ because he's there. You remember the account in Luke 24. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus is risen. He's walking with two men. And he does something astounding. I, I still think it's the most astounding moment in the New Testament when Jesus takes the whole Old Testament and he walks these two men through the Old Testament, gives them an Old Testament survey, and preaches himself from the whole Old Testament. We know Jesus is in the Old Testament text because he does a survey of it and shows himself to be there. Perhaps he's not in this specific text as Savior. Perhaps he's there as Creator. Perhaps he's in this text as prophet or priest or judge. But he's in every text in the Old Testament. We don't have to insert him there. He's there. Our task as interpreters is to see Christ. A second interpretive principle for any text in the Old Testament is we should always remember that these narratives, especially, were written for our comfort and our hope. According to Romans 15, and you should write this at the top of every page in the Old Testament. You should interpret it through this grid. Paul says, Romans 15, whatever things were written before, he's talking about the Old Testament, whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scripture might have hope. If your reading of the Old Testament doesn't bring you comfort and hope, you're doing it wrong. And so tonight, we're going to strive to show you how our passage is a hope-filled passage. A third interpretive principle. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul says, all these things, writing of Israel and their trials in the wilderness, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, all these things happened to them as examples and were written for us, for our admonition. Whenever we study narratives of the Old Testament, we should look to find models and examples. We should say, these people's lives were not just for themselves, they're a teaching tool for us. But fourth, and most vital for us tonight, the conquest and occupation of the promised land, which is a major section of the Old Testament, presents us a type, a foreshadowing of spiritual warfare. It's a picture of spiritual warfare. <clears throat> Lest anyone should think, that I'm advocating taking up the sword against unbelievers and taking their plot in your subdivision. The book of Joshua gives New Covenant believers principles for engaging in the spiritual battle in which they are combatants. Our spiritual battles that we wage are against the world, <clears throat> the flesh, and the devil. This conflict is described over and over and over again in the New Testament. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2. Abstain from fleshly lust, which war against your soul. Paul says this at the end of 2 Timothy 4 when he says, I fought the good fight. Paul doesn't mean there that he's gone out and killed unbelievers. 
What he means is he's battled hard daily against the world, the flesh, and the devil. You know, of course, the locus classicus about this is Ephesians 6, where Paul discusses the believer's armor and reminds us that we do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual forces of wickedness. And so now let me just remind you, because some of you came here tonight and already in our scripture reading have been shocked by all the militaristic talk in Joshua 10. And you're saying, Carl, I'm a peace-loving man. I would never fight against anybody. My friend, rethink that. You'd better. You're called to engage in battle, battle to the death. The scripture says if you're a believer, you have to battle no treaty, no surrender, no ceasefire. You are called to war moment by moment against those three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And what we have in Joshua 10 is a glorious picture for New Covenant believers that tell us how to war against our enemies. The divinely mandated execution of these Canaanites is a model for us. We're to read this chapter and say, oh, that's how we're to put to death our enemies, the flesh, fornication, uncleanness, evil desire, and covetousness. Don't look at these accounts and say, oh, how bloodthirsty these people were. They're barbaric. If you look at verse 40 in our text, God tells Joshua to do this. Notice this carefully for those of you who struggle with an ethical framework. Look carefully at verse 40. We read that Joshua did all of this as the Lord God commanded. Since God told Joshua to do this, therefore de facto, it is holy. Because God never commands anything unholy. Instead you must say, I have enemies that God says I'm to fight. If I am passive, my enemies will continue to take ground, and I can show no leniency, therefore, against the world, the flesh, and the devil. I must grapple every day for every inch of territory. And so with that in mind, let's dig into the second half of the second two-thirds of Joshua 10. I want you to notice the completeness of Joshua's victory, the great extent which our text goes to show the thoroughness of the victory. Remember, no word of Scripture is given that is extra. Every word of God is is profitable, we're told. As we read through the end of Joshua 10, Joshua finished the battle. He killed all the Canaanites just as the Lord commanded. He didn't rest and say, okay, I'm going to take care of those enemies over there, then I'll be content to let these other enemies reside in the land. I want you to notice the constant refrain in our chapter. So you need your your copy of God's word open to Joshua 10 and follow along with me. Look at Joshua 10 verse 20. We read that it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they'd finished. Then look at verse 28. I want you to see the drumbeat of our text. Verse 28 in Machida, on that day Joshua took Machida and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them. Here comes the numerics and the quantification. All the people who were in it, he let none remain. Verse 30, the Lord also delivered it and its king into the hand of Israel. He struck it, here it comes again, same numbering, and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, he let none remain remain in it. Look at verse 32. I hope you're starting to see the pattern here. The same in Lachish. 
he struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword according to all he'd done to Libna. And as we read through the same thing in Gezer, Eglon, Hebron, and Debir, we see a complete conquest. And the summary is given in verse 40. Just in case you didn't see all of the preliminary steps, we read, Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country, the south, the lowland, the wilderness slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed. Who did he conquer? All the Canaanites. Why did he conquer? Because God commanded. Look at the punchline in verse 40. As the Lord God of Israel had commanded. How did he do this? Ah, oh, the secret is in verse 42. Look carefully there. In verse 42, we are told, the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. This simply shows us that God keeps his word. God had promised before they ever set foot in the land that his people would be victorious over all their enemies. And now by the end of chapter 10, they are. They've completely conquered their enemies. So a word of application. This text is a foreshadowing. Because we've said all through this text that Joshua, his very name is the same as Jesus. This Joshua is a foreshadowing. He's like a road sign pointing to the New Testament. We've called him all throughout our exposition for 38 weeks, the lesser Joshua. Because the greater Joshua is the Lord Jesus. Isn't this a foreshadowing of the greater Joshua's complete triumph over all his enemies? We see this in this chapter, but I want you to notice some of the interpretive details. Notice one of the interesting stories that's woven in. Look back to verse 16. Joshua had been doing battle with these five kings who allied themselves against Joshua. And these five kings, their nations are routed. What do they do? Look carefully. These five kings. They've been at the rear of the forces. All of a sudden, their nations crumble they're chased down, and so these five kings get together. These five men who are used to ruling and reigning, these five men say, we've got to hide. And surely they're thinking, we can hide. This is our home area. We know this turf well. These are strangers who haven't lived here in Canaan. They won't be able to find us. And so one king says to another, I know a great king, a great cave where we can hide. And so we see in verse 16, you see it there in the text, these five kings have fled and hidden themselves in a cave at Machedah. Does Joshua say, oh no, I can't find them. My spy network is broken down. The details aren't good. I can't find these men. They've escaped. That's not what we see at all. Look at verse 17. The five kings are found hidden. Joshua rolls the stone over the cave, and eventually they're hung and executed. Again, this is like a signpost pointing ahead towards a New Testament event. Joshua 10 is like a blinking arrow saying, look ahead, picture of what's to come. And I want to show you what happens, the fulfillment of this text in the New Testament. Look at Revelation chapter 6 and see this text being fulfilled, the true fulfillment. <clears throat> Revelation 6, we have there in Revelation 6, not something happening in a localized province in Canaan. Now we come to the end of the age. We have not just the judgment of a few small tribes, we have the judgment of the world in Revelation 6. Pick up the narrative in Revelation 6, verse 12. John writes, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, 
there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Now comes the rumblings of the last judgment and the kings of the earth. Sounds very familiar. The great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountain and said that the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That would be the greater Joshua. For the great day of his wrath has come in Revelation 6. And who is able to stand? What you have here in in Joshua 10 is a tiny, tiny foreshadowing of that great day when all the rebellious kings of the world are crushed by the greater Joshua. These kings in Revelation 6 were told on the last day will try to hide from the greater Joshua. But hear this warning. If there was no hiding place from the lesser Joshua a man who was beginning to daughter, a man who was a little feeble, an 82-year-old man whose eyesight was dim, who wasn't omniscient. If wicked rulers couldn't hide from him, how much less will there be a hiding place on the last day from an omnipresent, omniscient, greater Joshua? Listen to what the psalmist writes prophetically about this. In Psalm 21, the psalmist writes, Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You'll make them as a fiery oven in the day of your anger. What you have here in Joshua 10 is a a foreshadowing of that great day when the greater Joshua, the triumphant second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus, will find all those who have ever opposed him and he will judge them. Now, I want you to notice how mighty the movement of God is upon the nation. Because not only do you see Joshua going through these rebel nations, mowing them down, crushing all his enemies, even those who are now left alive like these five final kings. I want you to notice how, how overbearing the lesser Joshua is. And you're learning to think from the greater to the lesser, or the lesser to the greater. I want you to see... We see the lesser Joshua doing this. Just imagine how great the power of the greater Joshua is. Look back in Joshua 10 at verse 21. We read, All the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Machedine peace. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. The awe of this man. Look at those words in verse 21. No one could even open their mouth against Joshua. The awe of this man Joshua had so fully fallen upon all the Canaanites that none dared even curse the Israelites when they were still in their city. Their smoldering, crushed, rubble heaps. They didn't even say, ooh, that Joshua, he's a, mm, I'm going to get him. Every mouth is stopped. And you know this is a foreshadowing of something. The whole chapter is a foreshadowing of something greater. Because if people stop their mouths out of dread, out of fear of the lesser Joshua, how much more will every unbelieving mouth be shut at the greater Joshua? Isaiah prophesies about such a day. When he writes in his great messianic prophecy in Isaiah 52, kings 
shall shut their mouths at him. You see, what you have playing out in Joshua 10 is just a panorama of the redemptive drama. What you have here panning out is the greatness of Christ and how he crushes his and our enemies. When Christ comes in his glory to crush his enemies and exalt his children, even unbelieving enemies, Biden or Trump, Putin or Xi, even unbelieving rulers will place their hand over their mouth and all their curses must stop. They'll not even be able to utter a syllable against Jesus because of his awesome power. Then comes a picture that I want you to see correctly. I want you to understand its symbolic value. It's typical and foreshadowing value for you. After Joshua mops up, he comes and he finally does his final act. He brings the kings out of the cave. Look at verse 22 of Joshua 10. Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me. And they did so. They brought out the five kings to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmouth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. Here come these men. The day before they were national rulers, the day before they were mighty, the day before they spoke and people jumped to meet their every whim. Now come these five kings paraded out before not just Joshua, but before all the nation of Israel. Joshua lays them down on the ground. Look at the text clearly. He lays them down on the ground, face down in the dirt. These rebels who would dare to fight against the living God, their faces in the dirt. And Joshua tells his captains, look at verse 24, some of the most astounding words in all the Old Testament. Put your feet on their necks. These Israelite soldiers, don't you know what they thought? Uh, Joshua, my feet? My feet on the, the necks of those kings? This is a symbolic act showing the idea of subjugation and authority, using the neck of your enemy as a footstool. Listen to me carefully, because when you see verse 24, it should cause you to jump up and shout hallelujah. Every Christian knows the ancient promise of Christ bruising the head of Satan, found in Genesis 3.15. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. That's the promise given in the garden right after the fall that Christ will bruise the head of Satan. Every believer has heard the promise of Psalm 110 that Christ's enemies will be the footstool for his feet. Every believer knows the promise of Ephesians 1.22 that God has put all enemies under the feet of Christ. But listen to me carefully. This is so glorious. You might still be talking about this tomorrow. I can't believe that Christ's triumph is actually this glorious. When you look at verse 24, this is a picture. It's a clear picture of how we, those who follow the greater Joshua, have the joyful privilege of sharing in his victory. Joshua doesn't say, nobody else can touch their necks, just me. He chooses men who are united to him, who are his faithful followers, and he says, you do it too. You put their feet Put your feet on their necks. And this text, amazingly enough, you're looking at this text and say, well, it's, that's for Old Testament captains under Joshua. This text shows up again in the New Testament. Look at Romans 16. Keep one finger here, but look at Romans 16. And I want you to see the exact wording. I want you to see what 
the Lord tells you will be your participation in putting your feet on the necks of your spiritual enemies. Romans 16, verse 20, the Apostle Paul writes, and he says in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. You have a participation in this. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. We know that the devil will be under Christ's feet, but we don't get how glorious our victory is since we are in vital union with Christ. Since we are united to him, his victory is our victory. His triumph is our triumph. Joshua's triumph was the triumph of the whole nation. <coughs> what Paul tells us <coughs> is you will have your foot on the neck of the prince of darkness soon. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. These people who'd been born as Egyptian slaves, these people who'd been born in grinding poverty in Egypt now had their feet on the necks of kings. This is an astounding picture. It's an acted parable, an assuring sign and a visible encouragement. And some will ask, listen carefully, because you might be thinking this right now. How can a symbolic action encourage and reassure faith? Well, that's what a rainbow in the cloud did for Noah in Genesis 9. It was a, a symbol of God's covenant. That's what bread and wine do for us every time we take the Lord's Supper. Every month they're a sign, but they reassure and strengthen our faith. So for these men, putting their feet on the necks of these enemies provided fresh encouragement to them. This is what God will do to all of your enemies. Look at them there on the ground, face down, in the dirt. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Underneath the feet of believers. Now I want you to notice what Joshua does. And I want you to study his encouragement. Look at verse 25 of our text. And here's what great leaders do. People don't follow bitter, pessimistic men. There are some of you in this room tonight who are, God might be calling into office. And let me just remind you, people, God's people don't follow bitter, pessimistic men. People want to follow encouraging leaders. They want positive, optimistic leaders. No one should be more optimistic than those of us who have great gospel hope. Joshua shows us now another reason why he's such a good leader. Because he encourages his people. Look at verse 25, and I want you to see great leadership in action. What do you do in that moment when you just put your, your feet on the necks of your enemies? Look at verse 25. Joshua says to the nation of Israel, Don't be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Is Joshua just a hype man? You know what a hype man is. He's the guy who stands in the championship wrestler's corner. You know about championship wrestling, right? Oh, more culture I need to teach you. But the hype man is the one who stands in the corner and says, you can do it. Go out and, and take on that, that huge beast of a man. Is Joshua just a hype man? No. He gives real encouragement. Think about this. Where have you heard these words before? Look at verse 25. Don't be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. Where have you heard them before? You heard them in Joshua 1 because that's what God said to Joshua. So what does Joshua do? 
Look what he's doing in Joshua 10, 25. He's simply passing on the encouragement he's received. The encouragement that the Lord gave him, he's passing on to the nation of Israel. This is a basic principle. Whatever encouragement we receive from the word of God, we're to pass on. That's why Paul does this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1. Paul takes that word that he's received from the Lord and he turns around and passes it to the Corinthian church. He says, since we've received comfort from the Lord, we turn around and give the comfort we've received. Joshua's received encouragement back in Joshua 1. He doesn't hold it to himself. He turns around and says to his people, now let me give you some encouragement. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. This is what the Lord will do to our enemies. I want you to know something more subtle. Joshua doesn't just give them some sort of <clears throat> Dale Carnegie Institute secular droplet of wisdom. What Joshua is doing when he says, verse 25, look at it carefully. He's preaching the word. He's giving them encouragement from the word. What do you mean, Carl? Well, first of all, be wary of encouragement that's not rooted and grounded in Scripture. But Joshua gives them biblical encouragement. Now, I want to remind you what Israel's Bible was at this time. Here was the whole of their canon of Scripture. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and maybe Job. But Joshua is reaching into their Bible that they'd heard read, and he's preaching them a biblical sermon. Look back to Deuteronomy 3. This would have been in their canon of Scripture. In Deuteronomy 3, Moses tells the nation of Israel who's still wandering in the wilderness that they will one day be triumphant over their enemies. And so now, 42 years later, that's in the canon of Scripture. Joshua doesn't have much of a Bible. He has those five, maybe six books. But Joshua remembers the promise in Deuteronomy 3, verse 21, where Moses commands Joshua at that time saying, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings, meaning Og and Sihon, so will the Lord do to all the kingdoms through which you pass. Do you see what that is? <coughs> it's a promise <coughs> to Joshua <coughs> that just as Moses had triumphed over Og and Sihon, so Joshua now would triumph over all the kings in Canaan. God has already promised him. It's there in the canon of Scripture, small as it may be, that he'll be triumphant and victorious over all his enemies. So when Joshua says it in Joshua 10, 25, he's just preaching the word. Let me make two applications to us from this text tonight. The first, you should see in the glorious conquest of this text a picture of your final victory over all your enemies. We often sing these words. And I hope you sing them with joy. That great hymn, Who is on the Lord's Side? Fierce may be the conflict. Strong may be the foe. But the king's own army, none can overthrow. Round his standard raging, victory is secure. For his truth unchanging makes the triumph sure. This is what the scripture says over and over again. We will not be conquered by our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Yes, you have to keep taking up the sword to mortify and kill the sins of the flesh. But the day is coming when Satan will be crushed, when your flesh will be completely mortified, and the world will be overcome. You need this encouragement so you'll not faint. 
If you're in union with the greater Joshua, if you're united to Christ by faith, you will be victorious. You cannot fail. His triumph is certain. The believer who understands that truth can never be fundamentally pessimistic and downcast. His final victory is assured. God is by this word saying, come, put your foot on the neck of the evil one, upon my greatest enemy. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 16? The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Believer, tonight take hope. You struggle against your sin and think, I'll never triumph. I'm making no progress. Yes, you will. The scripture promises and demonstrates in every way that you'll be victorious and reign with Christ. A second application. We see in the fate of these five kings, the fate of these mighty men who fight against and flee from the God of the Bible. You see what their end is. My unbelieving friends who are here tonight, I don't say this with any joy. I say this with deep sadness. All of God's enemies he will hunt down and find. We see a picture of it here in Joshua 10. There's not one left surviving. God will hunt you down. He will hold you up as a display of his righteous judgment. You cannot win the fight against an omnipresent God. And the flight from this God is one you will never pull off. If you started running today from him at the speed of light, this God who makes the light would meet you still on the day of wrath. Stop fighting and fleeing. Instead, come to the one who will embrace you and give you eternal life. Tonight, don't run from him. Run to him. The greater Joshua shows mercy to enemies who come and lay down their swords and trust in him, repenting of all their sin. Let's pray together. <clears throat> oh God, tonight we pray for those who are discouraged, who are hopeless, who are battle-weary. Strengthen them by this word, we pray. We pray as well for those who are your enemies tonight, who are in this room. Lord, we ask that you would hunt them down, not in wrath, but in mercy. Show them the loveliness of Christ. Give them a heart to embrace him as redeemer and king. Lord, raise in our hearts an expectation, a delightful hope, looking forward to that day when all our and your enemies will be crushed and banished, and we will rule and reign with you forever. We pray this.